Um, turn in your Bibles to, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. If you were looking for comfort from a passage, maybe not the first half of this passage, but the second half a little bit more, I will say this about this passage. As we go through the book of Hebrews, we note that there are these arguments in favor of the supremacy of Jesus. But there are also these warnings that the author gives to his audience. Watch out, beware, stay at it, follow through, don't give up. And there's five of these don't give up exhortation passages in the book of Hebrews. They're what are called the warning passages. And so we come to a passage today that is by consensus the most severe of the warning passages. Now, also at the same time, and I don't know whether to celebrate this or not, the warning passages played a big part in my doctoral dissertation. And so I've done a lot of research on these passages, a lot of work on these passages, have some ideas about these passages, but I also know that the advice that was given to me about my dissertation and my doctoral research is that it can be a real conversation killer to talk about. So, so if you don't mind, we're going to read through this passage. I want to make some observations. And there are some thorny things about this passage, but I do think that God has something for us within this as we honor what the author of Hebrews was trying to accomplish 2,000 years ago. So let's hear the challenging news first. So if you open up to Hebrews chapter four, chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, let me read this again for you. This is the bad news first, all right? Hebrews 6, 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Your translation might have a little bit different, like if you have the ESV, it puts impossible at the beginning. I read from the NAS because it puts impossible to renew to repentance altogether, okay? And so let's just, just as a starting point, I just want to say this is a super challenging passage, okay? This passage is not maybe the easiest, it is one of the most famous or infamous of what we call the warning passages in Hebrews, and most of Hebrews is, again, these arguments that is making an argument that Jesus is greater, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than Joshua, greater than high priest, greater than any sacrifice, offers a greater covenant, is going to a greater mountain, the city of God on Mount Sinai, not Mount, on, on Mount Zion, not on Mount Sinai. So greater, greater, greater. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. But while he's making this argument, he intersperses these sections where he turns to the audience and says, hey, you got to watch out. You got to be careful. You got to be diligent in your faith. And this is one and so what I want to do today is I want to talk first about the difficulty of this passage. I want to talk a little bit about maybe where we all come from, from our theological space, because oftentimes our theological backgrounds are not the same. That we, one of the things that I hope we do is we aspire to be kind of a theological refugee camp, right? 
that people come out of all kinds of backgrounds. And, but, but out of the center of knowing and wanting to love Jesus, that we come together. But it also might mean that we have some different thoughts over the years that we've wrestled with about how our salvation works and what happens if somebody falls away from their faith. What does that mean? So let's talk about just the difficulty of this. And there is an ongoing debate among people who love Jesus, among the refugees, the denominational and theological refugees, maybe even in this room, but also out in the academic world, in the theological world, in the pastoral world, about this basic question. Can someone who has expressed genuine faith in Jesus at some point turn away from that faith and, for lack of a better term, lose their salvation. That having once had a faith for salvation, can someone lose their salvation? Now, some people in the refugee camp say no. That if God chose, God is sovereign, God brought you in, then God keeps you in. And perseverance is then unconditional unconditional perseverance. Now, those folks are people that we call Calvinists or people that are in the Reformed. Starting to nod off. Hang with me, okay? Now, some people, to that question, and lose faith, lose their salvation. Like this. If you follow I won't say okay. Jesus. People have free field decisions in their life and of Jesus. They have freedom of will, real for good. These folks are minions or in the West tradition, like the tradition essentially. Uh, that camp. This morning, we are going to this long-standing debate. You're laughing. You? This, is, this is what we call theological tradition. Just theology come from a where we our faith and we're but we also recognize people who love Jesus, who, who love God's word, that are careful with God's word, that might have landed in a different place in terms of their own understanding of formation. And what we call that, what we call that in the theological tradition, is we call it an enduring debate. It's an enduring debate. And there are tensions within that. Now, I have my own particular stance on that, and I feel like um, as, a, as a church, and even in the evangelical free church, there's room for disagreement. There's agree to disagree on some things. Now, I, I have my own particular sense about this, but one of the things that I want to find comfort in is not my theological tradition, which is helpful. What I want to find comfort in is Jesus. And what I want to find comfort in is what God is doing in this world. And as much as I want answers, and we'll talk about this more, as much as I want answers to hard questions, what I really want is Jesus to walk with me through it. Right? I, answers are great, and for a long time I thought that good ministry was just about providing answers to people. Like, why do I go to seminary? So I can learn the right answers to all the questions. 
But eventually what you realize in ministry is that knowing the answers is not ministry. Walking alongside people in the midst of their challenges and tensions is what ministry is about. Now, again, I have my own convictions on this, and I want to walk through some of the ways that I read this passage, but ultimately what I want us to do is I don't want us to find comfort in the idea that, oh, I agree with Pastor Craig, or, oh, Pastor Craig has an answer for this. There must be an answer. What I want us to do is I want us to be able to say, God is good, and God knows what's going to happen. God knows what's gonna, how he's going to figure this out. Okay? And I want us to put our, ourselves in the hands of God. Now, that being said, I have some things to say. All right, all right, you guys get, you guys get what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're walking into a place where there's lots of disagreement about this passage. You're probably like, all right, big guy, why don't you tell me something I haven't heard already? I've been around the block. All right, let me see if I can, okay? So in order to understand this particular passage, what I want to argue is that the author of Hebrews, in all of these warnings, has a particular group of people in mind from the Old Testament that he's using as an example of not having great faith. And I suppose in all of this, I, I guess the other thing I want to say about this, um, this long-standing theological debate, in some sense the theological question can be put on hold because really there's a practical reality in all of our lives. Whatever we believe about can you lose your salvation or not lose your salvation, we all probably know someone who has at some point put their faith in Jesus, but today no longer exhibits that kind of faith. And there is a theological question, but there's also a very practical question for us. And what are we to make of that person and their prospects of re-belief in Jesus and re-openness to the gospel? And so the real question that we have to answer today is not whether that person actually came to faith or apparently came to faith. I think the issue in this passage that really, to me, is the most troubling is the finality of it. Hebrews 6.6 6 says, And then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And we can talk all the day long about people who the book is still open on. But the question is, when does God, does God, and for what reason does God shut the door on repentance? What do we make of this? Is this passage talking about the guy who used to be a pastor and is now an atheist? Or is it talking about my neighbor who grew up in a Christian home but has now grown kind of cold or callous to things of the Bible or the church? Or hitting closer to home, is this passage talking about my son or my daughter who had a vibrant faith as a child but went away without the trellis of home and church community and has seemed to slide away from their faith? That's what we're asking the question about. What do we do? What do we do in a situation like that? And I want to make the case today that the author has a very specific group, a sort of group in mind, when he uses this kind of rhetoric. He's making, he's, 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 using this as a rhetorical device in many ways to move people back into their faith. In order to understand this passage, we might have to step back and take a look at the whole of the book. 
throughout the book of Hebrews and is offering all of these, these, argu- these like, here's a great example of faith, especially chapter 11. Like, here's an example of faith. Look at, a- look at Adam. Look at uh, Abel. Look at Abraham. Look at Isaac. Look at Jacob. Look at Joseph. These are all great examples of faith. But there's also a couple places where the author says, hey, look at these people. Don't be like them. And the ultimate bad example of faith, the very worst example of faith, we talked about a little while back when we were looking at chapters 3 and 4. And that is the very worst example, the very worst example you should never follow is the example of the faith of the Exodus generation. If you want a bad example of faith, the Exodus generation is your bad example. It's the worst. The other example in chapter 12 is Esau. And I will make the case that both the Exodus generation and Esau fit the same basic profile. And that is that they are heirs apparent. It is for them. They are to be given the promises. They choose to give up that inheritance. They don't value it highly enough. They give it up. And then once they are unable to inherit, they have second thoughts. And they say, oh no, please, I want it now. And when they do, they find themselves without a place to repent. The Exodus generation has that at the 12 Spies episode. And Esau has that as he gives up the birthright and then begs Abraham or begs Isaac to bless him, bless him after Jacob tricks him out of the inheritance. So with that said, that's the profile here. And what the author is going to do is he's going to overlay that on the situation of those in the book of Hebrews. All right. So to recap on the Exodus generation, let's just talk a little bit about what they do and why it's so bad, why their faith, why their example of faith is so bad. Okay. So God rescued them from slavery. He does this in Exodus. He does sign after sign after sign after sign after sign after sign that he's on their side and not on the Egyptian side. He saved their children from the Passover by giving them instructions about the blood on the doorposts. He saved them from the death of the firstborn. He then delivers them from a life of slavery. As they're standing on the shores of the Red Sea, waiting to be slaughtered by the Egyptian army, he parts the Red Sea. They are able to walk across on dry land. When they're in the wilderness, he provides the, uh, the, 12, the, ten, the 12 commandments. What kind of a pastor are you? The 10 commandments. The tablets. He provides manna in the wilderness. Where there is no food, he provides miraculous food. Where there is no water, he provides miraculous water. Time after time after time after time after time after time, God comes through in a miraculous way for the Exodus generation. But when they come to the edge of the promised land and they send in 12 spies into the land, they come back, and there's a cool thing that they come back with. They come back, it says, they come back with a huge cluster of grapes. You guys know the story because we told it, right? Huge cluster of grapes has to be carried on a pole between two people. You think about this huge cluster of grapes. And they come back with pomegranates and figs. And the, and the report is what? The land is flowing with milk and honey. Like it's mouth-watering. 
And you can imagine that they're tasting of all these things. They're tasting of the fruit of the land. And they're like, this is amazing. This is awesome. But 10 of them, 10 of the 12, say, we can't do it. We shouldn't go in. Their cities are fortified. The people are big. We're not going to make it. Caleb steps up and says, hey, we need to go in and inherit. We, like, Caleb steps up, right? Great guy. Not even Joshua steps up. I think Joshua's kind of in shock, like, what the heck's going on? But Caleb is like, no, he sees it going south. He's like, by all means, we should go in and inherit. And then Joshua stands up, joins his voice. Moses as well, Aaron as well. And they're like, no, we need to do this. And everybody says, we're going to kill you. They're going to silence all the voices of faith. God has done this and this and this and this and this, and now they won't go in. And they're ready to kill and silence every voice of faith that is around them. And that's when God steps in. And he says, yeah, that's, this is not happening. It's interesting, in the passage, God actually says, hey, you know what I want to do? I want to I get rid of all of them, and Moses, we're going to restart with you. You're going to be the new Abraham. But Moses says, no, Lord. We need, you, your name is at stake. They'll he, the Egyptians will hear about this, and they'll say you couldn't do it. So God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do, which in itself is a really interesting theological question, right? But God says, this is what we're going to do. Everybody over the age of 20, Everybody over the age of 20, they all die in the wilderness. Only their children will enter into the inheritance to the promised land. Now, you might think that that's the end of the story. But in Numbers 14, the next morning, the nation of Israel comes to Moses and says, we are so sorry. Because God has said, no, you're going you're gonna to take a lap around Mount Sinai for 40 years. Like big PE coach in the sky, right? Lap around Mount Sinai, everybody. Let's, let's get it going. And they say, no, look, we're so sorry. We want to go in now. And so they get all their, their troops together, and they go in, and Moses is like, well, if you guys want to try, go for it, but I'm not going because God didn't say we could go in now. They try to go in, and they're routed. They lose it. They can't, they don't win. And now they have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until their bodies fall in the desert, they get manna and water. God takes care of them. But that generation dies in the wilderness. Only their kids go in. And the only two people from their generation that make it in are Joshua and Caleb. Those are the only two. That's the story. Heirs apparent who were promised the inheritance that God did thing after thing after thing after thing for them they repudiate the inheritance, they are judged, and then they want to repent. But according to chapter 12, like Esau, they are not able to find a place for repentance. Okay, now that's what I think he has in mind in this passage. Now the question then comes is like, what then, what does that mean about the audience of Hebrews, and what does that mean in our own lives about people who it seems like God has done thing after thing after thing for, and then they've walked away from their faith. What do we do with that? What do we do with this idea of finality of disobedience? 
So as we look, look at, um, look at six, uh, look at chapter six and verse um, four. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and again, the Hebrews Exodus generation in, in um, chapter four, verse two, it says that they also had good news preached to them. So I think that this is referring to the Exodus generation. That it says that those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and tasted of the goodness of the word of God. Um, I think this is the idea of the 12 spies. They come back with a mouth-watering menu of what is in the land. They're tasting of it. It says partakers of the Holy Spirit made partners with the Holy Spirit. The Exodus generation was in partnership. This word partaker is about partnership. Partnership with God. That's what they had and that God was in partnership with them. Real partnership. It says that God will fight for them in Deuteronomy 1.30. He will lead them into the land. He carries them like a father carries a child. Deuteronomy 1.31. He goes before them. That's real partnership. But then it says that they have fallen away. And the problem that the author of Hebrews is facing in real time is his audience and whatever pressures they are under from this dominant culture, the Greco-Roman culture, the culture of Judaism in its day, on them, feeling it from both sides, whatever is de- what they're dealing with, it has moved them to a place where they've been inattentive to their faith. Where there's been neglect of following hard after Jesus. It's a sort of inattention that doomed the Exodus generation. After seeing such great works of God over and over and over, not to then go forward into this next season and expect God to do the same thing for them that he had done over and over and over and over again for them in the previous season. This is why Hebrews cautions in 2.1 that his audience not drift away. And he cautions in 4.1, see to it that none of you come short. In 10.39 he says, Watch out that you do not shrink back. The constant call in Hebrews is the need for endurance or perseverance. Now, what do we make of this today? So my basic idea, my basic thought here about the warning passage is that it's talking about the Exodus generation, okay? And it's overlaying that situation on the audience. And I would just say this. From our standards and 21st century preaching standards, it feels a little heavy-handed. I think maybe this is where we come and we're like, hey, in the 21st century, like this sort of rhetoric might not work. But back in, even go back a couple hundred years, go back 2,000 years, this sort of rhetoric was commonplace in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, especially in the Roman world, one of the common threats that you see from fathers who have children that are not obeying their parents. I know that doesn't happen today, okay? But one of the common things, if you had an errant child in the ancient world, especially if you were Roman, if you had an errant child who just was not doing what you wanted them to do, one of the common threats that you see in the literature of the ancient world is that fathers would threaten to write their children out of their wills that they would threaten to take away the inheritance. Now, it's, it's actually super interesting how often that occurs in literature. It happens actually over and over and over again in Greco-Roman literature. 
Trust me, I mean, again, this is what I did my doctoral work on. I just read about fathers threatening to disinherit their children. So I re- it was called inheritance and disinheritance in Hebrews. That, that's what I spent like five years of my life doing, okay? So anyway, trust me, it's there. Now, here's the interesting thing. For all the threats, for all the threats in the first century world of threatening to disinherit a child from a will, one of the things we actually have a lot of from the ancient world are wills that get unsealed after a death. And you know what never happens in a will? Their children get disinherited. It doesn't happen. The threat is all over the place. But when it actually comes down to it, fathers do not disinherit their children. And what I think we have going on in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews is a product in many ways of its time, where there is this rhetorical device that is used to get people back into, back onto the right track. And the author of Hebrews is using this rhetorical device, this kind of hyperbole in many ways, to get people back on track. So I would make the argument that what he's doing, this is rhetorical, and one of the reasons why is look at what he says in the subsequent verses. Look in verse 9. In verse 9 it says, but, beloved, (laughs) like, you're like, you just said I was going to die in the wilderness, right? Okay, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, even though we're speaking in this way. And I think what we have here is the author is like, look, I want to make it clear, being inattentive to your faith, succumbing to the pressures of this world is a dangerous thing. But understand, I think you're going to pull out of whatever dive you're in. I'm convinced of better things concerning you. That word better is super important in the book of Hebrews. It actually, in the New Testament, it's used in the book of Hebrews more times than any other book It's the word kraton, and it actually is also translated as greater. It's actually where we get our title. Jesus is greater because the word better always refers to something that Jesus is associated with. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And we are convinced of greater things about you, things that accompany salvation, because we're convinced you are going to stick with Jesus. Now the question is then, what is this antidote? Even though heavy-handed rhetoric, okay, I think we can agree on that. Now, at the same time, we still have this question about what, what happened to the Exodus generation? Like, what happened to Esau? Will we see them in heaven? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. God does. I don't. And I don't have a system that puts that into a nice little box. What I know is that when you look at the rest of Scripture, you see a compassionate Father who understands your faults. You see a Jesus who has been made like us in every way and understands and sympathizes with our every doubt, with our every weakness. I mean, that's earlier in the book of Hebrews. That we have a compassionate father 
Now, is there ever a time where God's grace runs out? Well, at the end of all time, when the judgment, at the judgment seat, there, w- there will be an end to the patience of God. There will be an end of the patience of God. Until that day, I'm going to assume that the patience of God is open for business. And every person who has fallen away, I'm going to urge to come back to the supremacy of Jesus. And I'm going to trust every person who claims their faith in Jesus. I'm going to take them at their word. And I'm not going to play games like, well, maybe they weren't authentic. Maybe it's like, look, all we can do is trust what our brothers and sisters say and trust what our Father in heaven has said. That's what we can do. And at the end of the day, like I said before, I don't, I don't want to lean. I don't want to trust in... Look, I, I am, I'm, a, I'm reformed. I am soteriologically reformed. I am reformed. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist. I'm what you call an infralapsarian Calvinist. We'll talk about it later, okay? It's okay. Okay, but all that to say, I do think that God's sovereignty ought to be put on display when we think about our salvation process, that there was nothing I did. Even my decision to follow him was something, if we want to call it a decision, I'd call it a response. I was responding to the work of his spirit in my life. Maybe we call it a decision, maybe not, but and great mystery. There's a great mystery, and is that at the end of the day, on the feet of Jesus, I urge every person. Do the I'm going to let God sort of so my job is to make you know he sees you and loves you and God rejoices you come to him. Are there hard paths? Yes. One. But I'm balance of scripture bank is God's Until the day of judgment, and if you fall or walk, come back. He loves you. He embraces you. He rejoices that you come. I don't know what I'm going to do with the Exodus judgment, but I know that the Father is just, and I'm going to entrust myself and my sensibilities to him and his justice. Now, with all that said, if your faith is slighted, or you feel like maybe it has, what does the author of Hebrews say? Like, what, what is he urging them to do? What is the antidote for this sort of slide, for this sort of inattention? Two words. Look at 6.11. 6.11, as we kind of land the plane here, what's his point? What does he want them to do? And in, in, in the midst of all Roman world that's putting all this pressure in the midst of this Jewish subculture that's putting all this pressure on them in view of all these bad examples of faith what does good faith do? What does he want them to do? And he says this in verse 11 we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope the word earnest the word spook we might 
same diligence to have full endurance until the end. Two words, two words, diligence or uh, and endurance. Or diligence. Careful attention. In some kind of from love things the make was um, lost kind of a year of high school sports family love place about basketball or whether it was um, flag football or whether it was uh, uh, soccer or whatever is that there'd always be some, there's always be some kid out there who was just running around like their hair was on fire. That they were just running sideline to sideline to sideline to sideline. Like if you watch football today, we'll watch it with the men's group. Or like there will be a middle linebacker, and he will just run end line to end line, chasing people down like his hair's on fire. I love that. Like when we watch our, our, our older son, uh, Eli, when he played basketball, he played like his hair's on fire. And our other son now, they, he plays like his hair's on fire. We love it. And we have, that's our phrase in the family. Like, oh, they're playing like their hair's on fire. Like that, it might sound weird, but that's what we, that's, okay, that, you guys get a little insight into our family. This word in Greek, spude, earnestness, diligence, it's like having faith like your hair's on fire. There's, a, there's an urgency and you are moving from thing to thing because you have conviction and you are moving because there is a sense of urgency. And the author of Hebrews says, we desire that each one of you would have diligence. That you would go about this like it means something and that it counts for something and that people's lives are at stake. Faith like your hair's on, I know that's not a good one, but faith like your hair's on fire. Like you are doing it. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. So as to real, realize, the word is pleroforia, the pleroforia of hope, full assurance, full conviction. The phrase in Hebrews 6.11, the full assurance of hope. It can be translated as full assurance. It can also be translated as um, deep conviction or full conviction. The idea is playra means full, pharaoh means to bear it. You bear, you have this diligence and you have hope and you're bearing it fully. We have the word euphoria, which means like how you bear it well or you have uh, uh, ha good emotions. Playraphoria is about having full emotions, full conviction, full assurance. There is a sense in which I don't care what anyone says. If I am the last person on earth, I will love Jesus until my last breath. That's playrophoria. We desire that each of you show diligence so that you would have the full assurance of hope. Do you feel the velocity of the book of Hebrews now? Do you feel like he is, he's pleading with them that they would somehow find this God-given grace of standing firm no matter what. Now, there might be times, like me, where it's hard. My faith, I, and I would say this, there's not always been times where I've walked into the room and I felt full assurance of hope that I have been affected by the pressures 
of a world. And I would imagine that all of us feel that. But I would also imagine that there have been times in your life of faith where you have walked into, an, into a, a hostile room, hostile to your faith, and you said, it does not matter one lick what any of these people think about me. I will love Jesus, and it does not matter. That is the experience of pleuroporia. That is the experience of full conviction. That is the experience of full assurance. And the author of Hebrews says, whatever you do, you go after that full assurance like your hair is on fire. You run sideline to sideline. You do what it takes to build that into you like a habit. A gift, it's both a gift from the Spirit, but it's also a habit that we build. The rhythms of our lives that we get ready to know. We have an answer for these things, but we also know the compassion of walking beside our brothers and sisters. And so as we come to the book of Hebrews, as difficult as it is, I want us to hear the second half of this passage more than we hear the first half which is this, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. The bank is open, everybody. The bank of God's grace is open. As long as there's breath in someone's lungs, I want you to tell them that Jesus loves them and that Jesus embraces them and that God rejoices that they come. That's what I want you to do. As long as someone has breath in their lungs, you be an ambassador of God's grace. I also just want to encourage you, be diligent. Ask God, if you don't feel like you have that full assurance, just ask God, God, I need whatever that play Rafforia thing is, I need it. Help me. God will answer that prayer. God will answer that prayer. That's what he's looking for, is people who will follow him. With the beauty of his truth and the soft edges of his compassion. <laughs>